0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Turbo Dose, brought to you by the Clinical Skills team on Head Injuries. So, today we are joined by obviously the super Matthew um, and also a special guest, Helen Nichols. Would you like to introduce yourself, Helen?
1: Hi, I'm Helen. I'm a nurse that's recently joined Clinical Skills. My background is critical care and theatre recovery. And I'm Anna. Head injuries. There's two main causes of head injuries, which is a direct trauma to the head, so caused by maybe an injury, a fall, a punch, or there's an indirect trauma from rapid acceleration or deceleration, so such as a road traffic accident. Your primary brain injury is the injury that occurs as a result of your initial trauma, and the secondary is um, injury is caused by the following edema and pressure build up.
2: There's nothing we can really do about that primary insult. We can't stop yeah. somebody being punched or having their skull fractured, but it's, management is geared up towards preventing that secondary injury. When we're looking at these patients who have come in after a a head injury, we're obviously going to adopt a primary survey. I think it's important at this stage to actually highlight that these are trauma patients. So a lot of the time, they walk into the waiting room or whatever uh, of emergency departments or GP surgeries, and we sort of get thrown by them not being presented in a way that would suggest major trauma. But it's important that we think of them as trauma patients. So a primary survey, including the full GCS, is very important. It's important that we consider investigating things for, for collapses, particularly by elderly patients who, who present with uh, what they would describe as a fall, but actually need to really hone down on the history. Actually, do they remember the act of falling? Are we sure this is a mechanical trip? Or is there a potential for a collapse if they had with a bit of a vasovagal or, or an arrhythmia or something like that? So considering investigations of the collapsing, have a look at an ECG, do a line blood pressure if we think it's appropriate. But one of the key decision-making tools that we use when we're seeing patients with head injuries is the other NICE head injury guidelines. Now, I won't go through them in in particularly great detail, but essentially we're looking for some key risk factors that are going to indicate a raised intracranial pressure, those being a reduced UCS, a post-traumatic seizure, any focal neurological deficits, more than one episode of vomiting since the head injury. The other key risk factors that we're interested in are either a suspected open or depressed skull fracture or any evidence that's just a base of skull fracture, those being panda eyes, bilateral, black eyes, otorrhea or rhinorrhea, so blood, or CSF fluid, which is sort of like a, a pale, yellowy-type fluid coming out of the all
0: yeah.
2: oh, the ears, uh, indeed. Or battle sign, which is bruising behind the, the master processes. Um, if you've got any evidence of those, then we're going to want a CT scan pretty quickly and nicer. That should be within one hour. Otherwise, one of the key things that we need to get from our history is anticoagulant use. Now... If you're looking at the flow chart of the NICE guidelines, they talk about warfarin, and they don't talk about the other anticoagulants. If you read the full text of the NICE guidelines, if you're that dull, which I unfortunately am, uh, it talks he about...
0: Is. He really is. <laughs> He's not joking.
2: <laughs> it talks about a clotting abnormality, which is a bit vaguer. So generally in practice, we consider the, the DOAC, so your River-O-X-A and your apixaban to be equivalent to warfarin. We don't tend to consider antiplatelets as being equivalent to that. That comes with some caveats. There's differences in practice. Sometimes if you're on... Any dual antiplatelets, you might have a lower threshold for for CTing that patient. And certain antiplatelets, such as Clopidogrel, seems to have higher bleeding rates than aspirin. But otherwise, the rest of it is in the the NICE guidelines. We won't go through it here because it's a whole modality Mm. to look at guidelines. Have a little look in your It's really clear. Yeah, it's really clear. The
1: algorithm's great.
2: Yeah. And if you're on YouTube, we'll just stick a picture up because it's really. So let's say, Emma, we've we've gone through, we've seen our patient with a head injury, we've looked at the, the CT. Had nice guidelines and we've done a scan and oh no there's some intracranial blood what types of intracranial hemorrhage are we looking out for
0: oh Matty, great question thank there you be, it's like we would <laughs> have it there could be a few different kinds of bleeds so the first one could be an extradural hematoma now this is often due to a middle meningeal artery that's been torn under the temporal bone and um, so it could be classically you know a to the side of the head from a cricket ball or a cricket bat if someone's really angry um, and typically in exams or in your an, textbooks.
2: An angry cricket bat. <laughs> an angry
0: cricket bat, yeah. <laughs> you find those all the time. Um, so this would give classically in your textbooks or exam questions an initial lucid period but actually in real life this is quite uncommon um, but typically you know, we'd say the lucid period before then deterioration. The next kind, number two, is your subdural hematoma. And this is due to a venous tear, typically, again, with a sudden acceleration-deceleration injury, perhaps, you know, in a car crash or something. This is more common in atrophied brains, so brains that are a bit shriveled, basically. So elderly people, alcoholics, and also are anticoagulated patients. Chronic subdurals um, can present quite subtly, with a gradually unsetting confusion um, or drowsiness. Number three subarachnoid hemorrhages. So, you might see these in an exam where they say about the worst pain they've ever had, but I suppose when we talk about head injuries, these ones are most common in a very severe head injury, and they can also cause meningeal signs, and so things like neck stiffness. And then number four is your intraparenchymal. Parenchymal? Parenchymal? Uh,
2: Dealer's choice, I think.
0: Intra- parenchymal? Intra- parenchymal?
2: Intraparenchymal. I'm a parenchymal. We'll, we'll
0: go with that. The unfortunate thing about these is there's fewer neurosurgical interventions that are available, and the prognosis is worse.
2: So moving on to talk about management then, and it's the key bit of physiology we need to understand before we talk about that, is that the cerebral perfusion pressure equals the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. The point of that equation, what, what that basically means, is that if you raise your intracranial pressure... Your mean arterial pressure will have to rise too to maintain that cerebral perfusion pressure. Now, your mean arterial pressure can rise, but can only rise to a certain point. So, essentially, there's a, a window that you're allowed to have for your intracranial pressure before it gets too high. And then your before main your
0: arterial, brain explodes.
2: Basically, yeah. Before It'll your mean arterial shatters. your mean arterial pressure can no longer rise beyond that to maintain your cerebral perfusion pressure, and then, as you say, Emma, your head explodes. What's more likely to happen is herniation, essentially, of certain parts of the brain. So different parts of the anatomy can can herniate, so you can get uncle herniation, you can get tentoral herniation. Um, These are all just long, posh words. The thing you need to be aware of is coning, which is uh, essentially where there's so much pressure in the brain that the brainstem comes through the magnum. And clinically, we look out for a thing called Cushing's reflex, which Helen is...
1: When your blood pressure rises and your heart rate drops. And you get irregular respirations as well,
2: and that's essentially a pre-terminal sign as your cardiovascular centre, which is in the medulla, comes through the frame magnum. So keep an eye for that. So moving on to what we can actually do for these patients. Helen, medical management, what are our options?
1: So you want to avoid features or anything that's going to make someone more ischemic. So you want to make sure you avoid hypoxia, avoid hypotension, Mm. and just maintain that cerebral perfusion as well as you can. Through the assessment, you're keeping an eye on any um, raised intracranial pressure, signs and symptoms. But you can always sit someone up or just tilt them a bit head up, which will help to reduce any intracranial pressure just from way of gravity, really. Simple, but it works. Rapid sequence induction and running a patient low on their CO2 levels. levels. There's lots of different ways to do that, but that's more of a ventilatory support issue. And also um, mannitol or hypertonic saline, because it can help pull the water out of your intracranial space back into your um, vascular system mm. and helps to reduce intracranial pressure in that way.
2: You mentioned something about sort of regular assessment as well. We, and we use the term sort of neuroobs
1: don't require a like lot of practice. What does that actually mean though? So neurological observation is when you do a formal GCS, you also assess pupil size and reaction and make sure that they're equal left and right and you assess for any movement and whether the patients have got equal strengths bilaterally. And you're looking for facial drooping as well, just while you're talking to people. If you're really worried about a patient, if they've got a severe head injury, you do them 15-minutely. Your situation can change really rapidly and that's normally the nursing staff. If it's someone that's not deteriorating or reasonably stable, then you would do half an hourly, yeah. and then you reduce those as time goes on, hourly, two-hourly, four-hourly, depending on the patient's clinical state.
2: Emma, in terms of surgical options, so we talked about the medical side. What about interventions?
0: If we want to get in there with some surgery, we need to call our... Residents, very important neurosurgeon, and they can come along with their tools. Um, so the first thing you might do...
2: <laughs> the neurosurgeon's going along with their...
0: Their tools. Their tool. it's the a tools.
2: surgical kit, not... I just thought you were calling them tools. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: minions are their That's tools. subtle thing. <laughs> And they're going to come along and they could drill a hole, um, so they could do a borehole to help to release that increased pressure. Or they could do a craniectomy, basically cut open the skull and take part of it off. Um, and then they could evacuate the hematoma. so get rid of that congealed, nasty blood. But in severe traumatic brain injuries, your target is to get them into neurosurgery within four hours from the incident, so no messing around, get them into neurosurgery.
2: That's, that's always what they say, That's that's the quote, but I think in practice... It's you speak to the neurosurgeon Yeah exactly I mean Even if you're in a big Sort of trauma centre And you've got neurosurgery on site There's a lot of faffing around Before that It
0: takes a lot of them To get in from the incident exactly. They might be sitting In the ambulance yeah. For a good hour And then they're going to Come in to A&E And then they yeah. might have to Be evacuated somewhere else
2: I wouldn't worry about That number per se I, wouldn't, I don't like chasing numbers But I think yeah, Certainly getting an early Neurosurgical opinion Is, is going to be key isn't it
0: Getting so, the men with the tools So, how about someone's just a bit concussed, I mean, you know, if it's just a bit of concussion, you're not going to want to so call cool the neurosurgeons, are you? Just a bit of concussion. Well, just a bit. if it's just a minor head injury, how concussion. are we going to treat that?
2: Concussion's a really important thing, very common that we see after, after a multitude of head injuries, generally presenting with a sort of vague headache, poor um, concentration, a bit of nausea, but not really sort of a massive intracranial hemorrhage. Um it's essentially due to what I describe it to patients as a bit, bit of bruising on the brain. That's kind of what it is. You've rattled your brain around a little bit, and it's just a little bit fuzzy for a couple of days. The issues, it can last several weeks. It does impact quite a lot on, on work and school, particularly. Mm,
0: especially if they've got memory issues. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they can't
2: retain stuff uh, as well, and, and them concentrating at work is often difficult. So, so the key with, uh, with any head injury, certainly if it's a, a sporting related injury, to advise a graded return to work to activities
0: avoid contact sports so in summary please use the guidelines they are very important they're there for a reason and you can either read them at night when you're going to sleep like Matthew does or just read them as and when you need them and remember to beware the, the elderly who have fallen, think about other injuries they might have sustained and think have they collapsed and what you know what might be the underlying cause of that collapse.
1: Don't ever write off a drunk person as just being drunk. Always make sure you do your exposure examination, part of your A to b assessment very well, because you might miss some bleeding, bruising around the ears and the hairline, knuckles. Might give you some more clues as to what went on.
0: And also remember, CPP equals MAP minus ICP.
1: No neurosurgeons were intentionally offended in this podcast.